Father, we love you, and Father, we thank you for your word. Father, open our eyes, open our minds, soften our hearts. Help us to be able to accept your word, to understand your word, and to apply your word to our lives. Thank you for giving us your word, and thank you for giving us your son, and thank you for giving us your love. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. John chapter 11 has one of the two shortest verses in the Bible. Two words. Jesus wept. <clears throat> That's, I thought that that would be um, appropriate as a title for the sermon today because that is um, half of what I'm going to be talking about today is the fact that Jesus experienced sorrow. Let's jump right in. John chapter 11 verses 1 through 46. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, and it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, The sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. Who did Jesus love? That's right. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to, the, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you and you're going there again. Would you do that for someone you love? A place where your life was in danger and they tried to kill you. And you know when you go back, they will try to kill you again. Would you do that for someone you love? You probably won't do it for someone you like. But you would really have to love somebody to do that, wouldn't you? Another thing we need to keep in mind is Jesus knew it was not yet his time. But yet he was still walking openly into a place where he knew he would try to be killed. Aren't there 12 hours in a day? Jesus answered. If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this, and then he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. It's been two days since he was told that Lazarus was sick and dying. He said, My friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Real quick, because I have to be. I used to think that every single phrase in the Bible can, can, like, okay, there are phrases in the Bible that can be interpreted to mean more than just what it says. I'm okay with that. Prophecy and different things. But I said, as long as you hold to the fact that everything that is said is literally, that's what it meant first. And then I started coming across these passages. Like this one, it says he's fallen asleep. Jesus said he's fallen asleep. And another one, which you say, okay, well, how about another one? Jesus said, I'm a door. And then it really confronted me. Because, okay, okay, he's not literally a door. (laughs) He said, I'm a door, talking about I'm the way to life. I'm the way to heaven. I'm a door. He did use metaphors. He didn't literally mean he was a wooden door. 
He literally meant he was the only way through which you could go to get to God. But here, Jesus uses another metaphor. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. Because that's what you do with someone who's sick. You let them rest in bed. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death. But they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Who does he want to believe in him? His disciples. That's important as we go. Then Thomas, called twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. His disciples, they really struggled. They really struggled to understand what Jesus was talking about often. That's why he had to speak plainly with them. They still were confused. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. And here's, here's another little side point we need to keep in mind. They sent for him to come and heal his best friend, that he, one of his best friends that he loved. He was only two miles away. Now, imagine you're Mary and Martha. You send for who you believe is your friend, who you know can heal your brother, who you believe is his friend. He's only two miles away and he does not come. How do you feel? The same way they felt. You're angry. You're upset. It was not that big a deal for him to, he could have, when he got done doing what he was doing during the day, he could have walked that night. It wouldn't have taken him very long. Yatesville is one mile from one side to the other. You just have to walk across Yatesville twice. It's not that big a deal. So yes, Mary and Martha understandably were upset. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. You can see how that went down. I'm not going to see him. He knew. He could have come. He didn't. He didn't come to see me. I'm not going to see him. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Who is he asking for if they believe? Martha. Who did he ask to believe earlier? The disciples. And now Martha. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. 
As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. When he saw them crying, Mary and Martha crying, and when he saw all those who had come with them to console them and grieve with them crying, he was troubled and stirred and moved and experienced sorrow and grief. And then when he went to where he was laid, with Mary and Martha there, experienced the grief with them, he wept. Now don't let, and it says, so, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. He did. The scripture says he loved them. Y'all told me that earlier when I asked you, what did it say? He loved all three of them. But I don't want you to miss this idea. I, I, I use it a lot at funerals, but this is, this is the point. Jesus told his disciples, he's asleep, I'm going to wake him up. And they said, well, if he's asleep, then let him sleep, let him get better. And he said, no, you don't understand, he's dead. But I'm going to wake him up. If he's dead, how are you going to wake him up? I'm going to raise him back to life. Jesus knew why he was going. He knew when he talked to Martha. He told Martha, Do, he's, if he, he will rise again. She said, I know he's going to rise in, in the resurrection. He said, no, 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 I am the resurrection. Do you believe? Yes, Lord, I believe. Let's go to him. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead. And I struggled with this when I first read this or first studied this, really, I struggled with this to think, why? Because I know me, and I know if I had told my disciples, let's go, I'm going to raise Lazarus back to life. He's died, but I'm going to wake him up, and I've done this so that you will believe in me. God has God caused this to happen, and it's good that I didn't heal him while he was sick. It's better that I'm going to raise him back to life from the dead so that you have a greater miracle that you will believe in me. And then if I went, and then the Mary and Martha were crying, and what would be my response? I would say, no, 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 no. It's okay. I have come to wake him up. He is not going to stay dead. I have come to raise him back to life. It would be hard, in my mind, it would be hard for me to understand why I would then sit there and weep. If I knew in just a matter of seconds or minutes... I would just tell him to get up and everybody would be happy. But Jesus wept. He grieved with Mary and Martha. And what this tells me and all of us is that Jesus was God in the flesh. You've heard me say it many times. When you hurt, God hurts. When you grieve, God grieves with you. It's right here. Yes, he knows the future. Yes, he knows he's going to make all things right. Yes, he knows that one day everything's going to be okay. But when you love somebody, and take a child, because that's what God is to us, a father and we're little children. Take a little child who gets hurt and they skin their knee. You know they're going to be okay. You know it. But when they're sitting there bawling and got their little lip quivering, does it not make you sad with them? 
Why? Because you love them. Maybe you've never cried to the point with them, but, but it just breaks your heart to see their little lip shaking and quivering and little tears coming down their face. If you love them, it, just, it does something inside you. And that's what I want people to know. That That's how God feels about His children. When you hurt and you grieve and you're broken, He feels that with you because He loves you. He knows everything's going to be okay one day, but it doesn't mean that He doesn't grieve with you. Jesus, He knew everything was going to be okay. He knew there was no reason to cry. None. But that knowledge didn't change how He felt about Mary and Martha. They were grieving, broken, hurt, and he wept with them. When you hurt, God does hurt with you. And that changes things. It takes him from being that person that's distant and cold, and how could you let this happen? Because that's exactly what Mary and Martha were saying to Jesus. You could have stopped this. How could you have not come and done something about this? How could you have not been here? You must not love Lazarus. And that's the exact same thing we do with God. How could you have let this happen? If you really loved me, this would not have happened. You would have prevented this. It takes him from being in that seat to being the one right beside you, holding you, grieving with you, and telling you, I love you. I do. And it does hurt. And death was not part of my original plan. I didn't design you to die. I designed you to live forever with me. But sin brought death into this world. And I gave you free will because free will is the only way we can actually have this kind of love. That love where God puts his arm around you and Jesus weeps with you. The only way you can have that real kind of love is if we have a free will. If we have freedom to choose to love and to hate. Because if he didn't give us that free will, if he didn't give us the ability to hate, we, that wouldn't be real love. It would be forced robotic love that God programmed in every person that we, he forced us to love him. That's not real love. Why do we have sin and death in a world? Why hasn't he put an end to it? Why did he allow us to rebel against him? Because he's looking for people, a real family, people that really love him. Real love. That people choose to love. Not just some programmed in, wired, forced you to love me. God knows if he forced everybody to love him, he would know that that love's not real. That's not real love. And so because he wants real love from a real family, he allows sin, he allows death, he allows heartache, he allows this this world to go on as it is, but he's promised only for a short time. He used to let us live a thousand years. Go back and read the beginning of Genesis. Adam, they lived 900 years. Methuselah, 900 years. He cut it down by tenfold. Now we're a hundred years. That's an act of mercy, if you ask me. I don't want to live here for a thousand years. This place is awful. It's awful. I don't want to be here a thousand years. A hundred years is plenty long enough. That is an act of mercy on God's part. But yes, when we hurt, he does hurt with us. He does. And he wants you to know it.
That's why he gave it to us in our scriptures. So some of them said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Yes, he could have. He could have kept everybody from dying. But that's not the point. We don't want to be here forever. We don't want to be in this broken, sinful world forever. We want to die because we want to go on to a perfect world where God has us in his arms, where he won't let any of this happen to us. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead four days. What did she tell him just a little while earlier? He said, do you believe? She said, yes, I believe. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God. But when it came time to make that step, she didn't really believe. What she really believed is they were going to roll that stone back and it was going to smell awful because he was still going to be in there dead. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, bound, hand and foot, with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did, did what? Believed in him. You see how a huge portion of this, this, this story, this passage, is about focusing on our belief in him, right? He's, he's begging us to believe in him. He's begging the disciples to believe in him. He's begging Mary and Martha to believe in him. And the Jews believe in him. That's the whole point. I will raise this man from the dead so that you will know that in me is eternal life. Not in this world. In me. And therefore, you must believe in me, Jesus said. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And now there's an, another long section, another several passages of, of, of verses of Scripture that go on to talk about those who did not believe. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And this is the second part I really want to focus on. Some people, let me put this up. Some people, when you tell them the truth about God and Jesus and share the scriptures, do not believe. They won't. And we see from this passage that it's not really about the evidence. Because they had all the evidence they needed. Some of those saw, who saw him raise Lazarus from the dead believed in him. But some of those who saw him raise a four-day dead man to life then went on to tell the Sadducees and the scribes. 
For some people, it's not really about evidence. It's about sin. You can give some people all the evidence in the world. It doesn't really matter because that's not really why they haven't given their life to Christ. That's not really why they don't hop on board and surrender themselves to God. The thing that's really keeping them from doing so is sin. Let me ask you this. And you're going to think I'm getting off on a tangent, but I, I planned this, so it's not, it can't be classified as a tangent, I don't guess. Maybe it can. We'll talk about that later. Anyways, believing in God is not like believing in atoms. You know, protons, neutrons, electrons, molecules, atoms. Believing in God is not like believing in atoms. Does it matter if atoms exist? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it matters if they exist. Atoms hold everything together. You know that? Everything is made up of atoms. Without atoms, there would be nothing. Is your life affected by whether they exist or not? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. If atoms cease to exist, so do you. Okay? But whether you believe in their existence or not, does it matter? No. You know, there's a lot of people who believe the earth is flat. I thought it was hype, but I think that convinced a lot of people that it's true. I know some people are just trying to make a lot of money on YouTube. I, I understand. But I think they have convinced a lot of people that it, the earth is really flat. Whether you believe the earth is flat or round, does it matter? Does it change whether in your life, when you go to Walmart to buy groceries, does it make any difference what you believe about it? Not really. <clears throat> Nothing changes. You'll never find yourself, y'all, you'll never find yourself in a situation in which you believe or disbe- your belief or disbelief in them will actually impact your life because you don't work with atoms. You're not a, a phys- atomic engineer or physicist. So in your life, it really doesn't matter. But belief in God is not like that. It's not. Does it matter if God exists? Absolutely it matters. Absolutely it matters. The scripture says, you may not know this, the scripture says that Jesus holds everything together. You say Adam's hold everything together. The scripture says Jesus holds everything together. Colossians 1, 15 through 17, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. It's true. By Jesus, all things hold together. If Jesus were to stop holding everything together, we would be gone. If you, is your life affected by whether God exists or not? Absolutely. If God ceases to exist, so do you. But whether you believe in God's existence or not will, in fact, make a huge difference. Not just in this life, but for all of eternity to come.
What does it cost you to believe in Adam's? Nothing. It doesn't cost you anything to believe in Adam's exi- in the existence of Adam's. That's why when it's taught in school and people talk about the existence of Adam's, nobody's ever said, I refuse to believe in Adam's. It costs them nothing. It doesn't matter. So they're like, okay, that's cool. What does it cost you to believe in God? Everything. Everything. You can't live your life however you want. You can believe or disbelieve in Adams. You can live your life however you want. You can't believe in God and live your life however you want. And people know this. You have to submit to God as your Lord or as your master. He has commanded us to repent of sin, to be forgiven. And after he rose from the dead, he said, we are to go and preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations. Did you know that? Luke 24, 45 to 47. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's really important. Jesus opened the disciples' minds to understand the scripture. That is what we pray for. I pray for that. I want Jesus to open my mind to understand the scriptures. After he did that, he also said to them, This is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day. So now he's teaching them. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And now he's teaching them a little snippet of what the scriptures mean. All the Old Testament prophets, all that God was teaching throughout the Old Testament, he said, this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. What is that? That's the gospel. So what did he teach would be preached to all the nations in order for people to be forgiven of their sins? Repentance. Turning from sin. See, there's no conflict between the Scripture saying, if you believe, you will be saved. And then Peter saying, if you repent, you will be saved. There's no, it's not two ways to be saved. There's not two roads you can get to heaven. Some people have divided it into two roads where they say this road leads to salvation. This road does not. No, no, no. It's the same. The scripture teaches if you believe, you will be saved. The scripture teaches if you repent, you will be saved. The scripture only teaches one road of salvation because you can't have one without the other or it's not real. That's what James goes through so much trouble in James chapter 2 to preach. That if you say you believe, but you do not repent, your belief is not real. It's not real faith. He said that faith won't save you. You can't separate the two. What do I believe? I'm the pastor. I'm preaching. What do I believe? One, I believe that every single sentence in here and every word in here is true. And if there's two that seem to say the opposite, then somehow they both work together. Not, I don't hold one and throw the other out. I have to figure out how are they both true? How are they both true? Because all this is true. And the scripture spends a lot of time talking about this. You can, I said this in Sunday school last week, I think. You can believe and not repent. That's an easy example to come up with because the church in America is full of people who have done that. You can say, I believe the scripture's true, but I'm not going to turn from sin. 
Not going to do it. AKA, what that means is, I believe what you told me is true about Jesus, but I'm not going to submit to him as my Lord. Not going to do it. I will not do what he's commanded me to do. What has he commanded me to do? To turn from sin. And I'm not going to do it. You can believe and not repent. And James takes a lot of time in James chapter 2 to tell you that that's not real saving faith. He's not the only one. You can also repent without believing. You say, how do you do that? Well, think about Buddhist monks. They have determined to live their life without sin. They try not to kill anything. They try not to do any harm to anybody. They try to live in seclusion and only do good things. They have determined to repent of sin. But they do not believe that Jesus Christ is the way of salvation. They have not placed their faith in Jesus. And the scripture says, that's not going to save you either. You can repent without believing, it's not going to save you. You can believe without repenting, and that's not going to save you. Because to believe without repenting is to say, I believe the truth about Jesus, but I reject you. That's what it means. To say that I believe the truth about Jesus, I believe he's the son of God, I believe he's commanded me to repent of sin, but I'm not going to do it, therefore I reject you. That's what the demons did. That's what Satan has done. The scripture in James chapter 2 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they tremble. The demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but they refuse to submit to Him. They reject Him, and because they reject Him, they are not saved. The scripture paints one road of salvation. To believe and repent, they're the same. You must do this two sides of the same coin. That's why Jesus could say truthfully, he could say repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. That's why he could say that truthfully. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to say that truthfully, would he? That's why he could say repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in my name. But the problem is people love their sin and they don't want to give it up. That's the problem. John... um, Chapter 3, everybody's familiar with John 3.16. Skip down a few verses to verse 19 and 20. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. The truth of Jesus hit them in the face. They knew it was true. But they loved their sin. They loved their sin. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. That's like the the criminal who's committing the crimes is not going and looking for cops. He's not searching after cops because he doesn't want to have to stop committing his crimes. He doesn't want to have to stop selling weed. He doesn't want to have to stop stealing. So he's not looking for the one who's going to stop him. And that's what John is teaching us here. Jesus came, showed himself, proved himself through his signs, but people loved their sin, therefore rejected him. The biggest problem with people today is not that there's not enough evidence, because I can give you all the evidence in the world if you want it. The problem is sin. They don't want to let go of sin. They don't want to turn from sin. It costs them the thing that that they love. Therefore, they reject it. They reject him. People reject God because it will cost them. Jesus, uh, the scripture says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. 
Everyone. He commands everyone everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. He has commanded all people everywhere to repent because he will he has appointed a day in which Jesus will judge everyone in righteousness, meaning sin and holiness. He will judge all sin. But he does not want anyone anywhere to perish. Second Peter three nine. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. This is why it's true that he can say, but wanting all to come to repentance, and not being forced to say, but wanting all to come to belief. Is there two ways to be saved? No, they are interchangeable in the scriptures. To believe and to repent are interchangeable when talking about salvation because you must have both. It must be one thing. It's to believe the truth about God and then not to reject Him. You heard the gospel about God. You know the truth. Now you must not reject Him. You must actually embrace Him. You must turn from sin to Him. You must repent. But even though He does not want any to perish, He wants all to repent. He still gives us free will to choose what we will do. Jesus is very clear. If you do not repent, you will perish. Luke 13, 1 through 5. At that time, some people came and reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. These were people who came to worship and Pilate slaughtered them. And they came to Jesus about how could God let this happen? Can you imagine the scenario? How could God let this happen to them? They must have had it coming. You ever thought that? Must have had it coming. Karma. By the way, karma is very not biblical. And he responded to them. Jesus responded to them. Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No. There's your answer. No, they were not more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things. I tell you, but unless you repent, and you could say, but unless you believe, but he didn't say, but unless you believe. He said, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. He teaches, you cannot be saved without repenting because that's what it means to accept him. You talk about accepting Jesus. That's what it means. What does it mean to accept Jesus? It means to repent. Or those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed. Do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as well. And so we ask ourselves, what about when tragic things happen to people that we feel don't deserve them? If you'll notice on your prayer list, I added another name to the family of the bereavement. I don't know exactly how old he is, but he's really close to my age. And he was killed in a car accident this past week. And there's a lot of people. One came up to me and asked me and said, there's a lot of people there thinking, how could God let something like this happen to somebody so young? 
And they asked Jesus the same thing. How could God let something like this happen? The only way they could rationalize it is thinking, well, they must have been really sinful to have gotten something like that. And Jesus said, absolutely not. You are not protected from the evil that comes inherent with this world. Sin, death, decay, violence, sickness, they're all part of this life. And nobody's immune to it. It doesn't mean you're more sinful. But you must repent while you have time. You must repent. Or you will perish as well. He said. We've all sinned. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. And the punishment for sin, Romans 6.23, is death. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God offers us the free gift of salvation. Complete forgiveness of our sins. Something that, that we did nothing to achieve or earn. We did nothing to achieve or earn salvation. He offers it to us freely. He did it all. He lived a perfect sinless life and died a death that he did not deserve that we died. Because he did not sin. So he can legitimately take the place of someone who deserves death. We can't do that. We can't die in the place of somebody else so that they will be forgiven because we already have the death penalty on us. If you've been given a life sentence, you can't then say, well, my buddy who did the same crime got a life sentence, so I want to serve his life sentence. You can't do that. You've already been given a life sentence. And therefore, we cannot die in the place of another person because we already have the death penalty on us. But Jesus did it. He didn't just die for one person. He died for the entire world. 1 John 2, 2. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. And this is why some of the Jews did not believe in him after he rose Lazarus from the dead, but instead went went and told the Pharisees what he had done. Picking back up, verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? I'm going to try to pick it up, talk a little quick to finish. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What were they concerned about? They were concerned about their own power, prestige, money, wealth, position. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill Jesus. They knew he was raising people from the dead, but because they knew the Romans would take away what they loved, their sin, they decided not to embrace Jesus, but to kill him. Jesus told a parable about a poor man named Lazarus. It's kind of ironic how they tie together. There was a rich man. This is Luke 16, 19 to 31. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. Did the rich man give him anything? Did the rich man give him food? No. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. 
I don't know if this is a meaningful verse to y'all, but it is to me. It says that angels came and carried the dead man to Abraham's side. Now, that scripture, take what I'm about to say for what it, what, whatever it means you. But when my dad's mom passed, my grandmother, the night she passed, I woke up in the middle of the night and I heard what sound to me when waking up in the middle of the night was the sound of huge wind coming from huge wings, like a huge bird. I heard, and it was gone. I didn't understand it at the time. Went back to sleep, next morning woke up, got a message from my mom that my grandmother had passed in the night. Now, I may not ever get that again for anybody I love. Most people don't get to hear things like that. But you're not going to convince me that that was a coincidence. Not going to convince me. And I believe she was carried away by angels. This this verse is meaningful to me. And I pray it is to you as well. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades... He looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. So now the rich man who is in agony is asking that Lazarus, who he gave nothing, would come and dip his finger and bring it to him to give him some relief from his agony. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house, because I have five brothers to warn them so they won't also come to this place of torment. Here he is in hell, and he is asking for him to send Lazarus back from the dead to warn his brothers that they would not come to hell as well. But Abraham said this, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. There's that word again, repent. If someone from the dead would go to them, they would repent. But he told them, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Which brings us right back to what happened with Lazarus. If they don't want to believe, they won't. They won't. It's not about the evidence. It's about the sin that they don't want to let go of. That's, what, that's what's really going on. Jump back, John 12, 9 through 11 Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also. You see that? Not only did they decide to kill Jesus, they're going to kill Lazarus because people are believing in Jesus because Lazarus rose from the dead. So now we got to kill Lazarus too. Because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. 
They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah when Lazarus rose from the dead. They decided to kill them both. It's not about how much evidence is given. It's about the sin that people don't want to let go of. They don't want to repent. Jesus called Martha to believe. Remember, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And it said, therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw saw what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told him what Jesus had done. Now I have another section that I worked on that I'm not going to give you. Maybe I'll give it to you next week. But I hope I got across my main points today. When you hurt, God does hurt with you. He does, because he loves you. But no matter how much evidence you have, if you don't want to turn from sin, you're not going to. And so we must pray hard for those we love who are lost. We must pray hard because you cannot change them. You can't. Only them by their free will choosing to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not to your persuasiveness. Them responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God, only by them choosing to turn to God from that conviction will they be saved. It doesn't matter how persuasive you are. It doesn't matter how much evidence you give. You can't change someone. You can't save them. But you can pray for the one thing that can. You can pray the Holy Spirit will work on them. You can pray that the Holy Spirit will tug and draw and pull and, 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 just, and just constantly weigh on their mind. Because they know that, that what they're doing is sin. They know it. They're just not ready to give it up. But you can pray that the Holy Spirit never lets up on them. You can pray that the Holy Spirit stays on them all the time. Because you turned from sin to God when He convicted you. And so can they. As long as they're still alive, so can they. And God doesn't want anyone to perish. What does that mean? It means He's going to grieve if they die lost, just like you would, more so. And it also means, because he doesn't want anyone to perish, if you pray that he will work on them and draw them through the Holy Spirit, you can bank on the fact he will. You can count on it. Because he wants them to be saved. He wants them to surrender to him. He wants them to turn from sin and believe in him. So that is what we as the church must do. As long as we're here until we die in a car wreck or until a tower falls on us and it's not God's fault, it's not his problem, we are living in a sinful world and the sooner he calls us home, honestly, the better. The better. But while we're here and while we're suffering in the meantime, we must earnestly pray for and reach out to others. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for your love for us. And Father, we earnestly beg you to please draw those who are still lost. Draw them to you. Give us opportunities to share that gospel message, to share the fact that you do love them and that you desire an eternity with them if they would just submit to you as their Lord, if they would just believe that you are the only way of salvation and turn from sin, 
to you, to accept you and to no longer reject you. If they would just accept you and no longer reject you. Father, please don't let up. Don't let them sleep easy at night. Don't let them have a day that they can just go through the day and not even think about you. Father, draw them and don't stop. And Father, we commit that if you don't stop, we won't stop either. We love you, Father. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your abundant care for us. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. If you would please stand and join us for our last song. Amen. I love y'all. Thank y'all for being here. I'm so glad to see all of y'all. And uh, don't give up. Life gets really, really hard sometimes. And uh, we experience some really tragic things. And just remember that uh, God's not throwing pain and heartache your way. He's, he's got his arm around you and he's right there holding you and grieving with you. He loves you. And it, it hurts him when you hurt. And uh, don't give up on those that you, you love, that are lost, that uh, God loves them way more than we do. And he wants them to be saved even more than you do. Don't give up. Let's, let's close in prayer. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for your compassion and your love for us. And Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who, who draws us to you. And for you coming and dying on a cross as payment for our sins so that we can be forgiven and that there, this life doesn't have to be all there is, that you do have a perfect, wonderful life ahead of us. And Father, we thank you. Father, we look forward to being united with you in a way that we never have before, in a way that we're unhindered in your glory. We look forward to that day, and, and Father, we, we are thankful that it won't be long. But Father, as long as you choose for us to be here, Father, use us. Use us for your kingdom. We love you, Father. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.